to Workplace Trends with Liz Elam. I'm Liz Elam, your host. I'm also the founder of Juicy. Juicy is an online membership community of co-working founders, an international conference series, and a global network of spaces called Juicy Places. When I'm not running Juicy, I'm consulting with the DECO Group and attending the University of Houston's graduate program in Foresight. I'm obsessed with the future of work. And in this season, we're talking about just that, the future. Let's dive in. everybody. We're so excited that we finally clued in that we should get more of an international viewpoint as we explore the megatrends for next year. And we're super excited to have our friend Clive Dale join us all the way from Australia. Good morning, Clive. Hey, Liz. Good morning to you. If you don't mind, could you tell our audience a little bit about what you do? Sure. So I spend most of my time with landlords and helping them to reshape their assets to better meet the needs of their customers. Awesome. Awesome. And we super appreciate, I I get to see you at Juicy every time we're Mm. over in Australia and we love your support. So thank you for always supporting Juicy. It's super important to have people like you that come back year after year. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's just been amazing actually, Juicy. So thanks, Liz. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So as you know, I do this Megatrends article every year and I kind of just explore what could happen, what might happen, what we think is going on, what's interesting, what's not. And so I'm super excited to bounce some thoughts off of you. Mm. And, you know, in, in thinking about the real estate world, lots of people have heard me say that like their day of reckoning was due. They weren't innovating. It's time for a change. And I do feel like people got super complacent and were just like, I'm going to build mm. this giant building and I'm going to carve it up and people are going to pay me money and then I'll do another one. And now because of the pandemic and people have choice, that's no longer going to work. And Mm. so I feel that the real estate industry is never going to be the same and that they are going to have to pay attention to things like amenities and productivities. And is your building sick? And is your building sustainable? Is the air Is the error that you're giving people good or not? And I've, of course, talked to some real estate people who've given me a lot of pushback, um, which is understandable because nobody likes change. But do you feel like there's been this seismic shift to flex or do you think some of it is just going to kind of continue along the way it's already been? People on the journey to flex this. So landlords have been doing actually a lot to adapt to, to the needs of their customers. So if we think of them as being, they've got this incredibly capital-intensive space that they need to monetize. That's their number one. That's their focus. But their customers are becoming more discerning. So as a result, they're needing to do things like refurbish their lobbies to give a better, more human, more business-centric environment there. Mm -hmm. Um, They're needing to provide end-of-trip facilities to support different ways of commuting for example, um, the cafes that, and the, the food and beverage that sit within their buildings is, is getting better and better. And in the past, better and better meant more and more expensive. No, that's not what the customer wants. They just want a better experience. They want that to be more incorporated with what their life might look like for the weekend. So, and even just, you know, events across the precinct. So these things are happening and they're all good and they're all moving towards something. What they're moving toward is actually getting a better understanding as to what their customer is, Mm -hmm. who their customer is, because it's not just the person who signs the lease and pays the the bills. 
And it's not just the people who sit in the building every day, it's their visitors as well. So who is the customer and what do they need and, and what responsibilities the landlord have to help respond to those needs? Yeah. And we're, so we're at that point right at the moment where we have been, um, the landlords have been dealing with a bunch of needs, but they haven't really dealt with a core business-centric need, and that is around flex space. Mm -hmm. Okay, and some have been skirting the edges. Some think that they have actually addressed it, but I contend that most actually haven't um, addressed it at all. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I think the other thing, like I've got to give Australia props though, because I do think that when it came to sustainability, you guys like saw the options with well, et cetera. And we're like, oh my gosh, we've got to do this. And you guys like light switched over to better buildings. Now that doesn't mean that the other buildings that are around are up to snuff, but I feel like most new buildings and new developments really have an eye on sustainability and the actual health of the building, which I think is something that is going to become more and more important as the younger and younger generations come up and they really care about the environment that they're working in. Yeah, so a good example of that is, as I mentioned before, a lot of lobby refurbishments are occurring. So the traditional approach of a lobby was something that was either utility or something that was this big group grand statement about the building but what it did is it dehumanized us totally and so the work that's been going on with new buildings but also with refurbishments is around making those spaces human um, spaces that can be consumed rather than just traversed and also provide a, a range of spaces for people to be able to work outside their own premises mm -hmm. so traditionally you've either got a cafe or maybe a hotel lobby if you're lucky or your office. And so this is this kind of this, this fantastic third space that can often be provided in buildings, and that is I just want to be able to have an informal meeting with my subordinate or my peer or someone who's coming in to present or want to grab 10 minutes beforehand or I need to call my wife because I had a big argument with her before I went to work and that's not good enough, I need to speak with her. So this kind of diversity of spaces to be able to be human, to be productive, to be engaged, and in certain buildings, lobbies provide an opportunity to be able to do that. And this is all part of flexible workspace. Yeah, I've been amazed over the years at, at the big cavernous, you know, lobby mm. that offer nowhere to sit, that are just floor to ceiling marble. They're ridiculous and they're not comfortable mm. and they're cold and they're not inviting. Mm. And they are trying to make you feel like you're a small little thing walking into this giant corporation and yeah it's very not human and you know I did a consulting deal quite a few years ago with one of the largest REITs and they were looking at co-working and we were like you've got to activate the lobby like number one you've got to activate the lobby and they did and it's been remarkable mm -hmm. and yeah I feel like everybody's got to rethink their lobby and I think probably every single landlord now understands that flex or co-working has to be part of your development. I don't know anyone oh, that isn't thinking about it. So we, um, before COVID, people had a general idea that for thinking about their customers, about occupiers, 
they had a general idea that Flex was out there and some were leading the charge by, by consuming it. But it was still more of an idea in most people's minds rather than a necessity or a reality. Mm-hmm. Coming out of COVID, which is where we're in Australia coming out of, the inquiry, in fact, even the demand for flex space within buildings is skyrocketed. So even, even landlords that felt as though they were heroes in the past around the delivery of this are realising they've got to lift their game. And those that were resistant to it and now putting people on to try to work out how to respond to all of this. And, and, I, and I do think that there are two key ways that they could go. One is to say, right, our main game is to sign up leases across big swathes of our space. And here I'm talking about large landlords, okay? And we'll provide ancillary services in the form of flexible workspace. But it's almost like a bit of a necessary evil that's in the mind of, of, of landlords. Mm-hmm. And then another way, and it's a fundamentally different way of thinking, is that this is a new, if you like, asset class within our portfolio. And we're going to provide flexible workspace and we're going to make that appeal to not just our customers, but we're going to make it an appeal to as wide of an audience as possible. And we realise that prices are going to go up over the course of each quarter, but that's that's just part of having a portfolio where we have, you know, fixed long-term predictable uh, revenue lines and then we have this kind of variable spot pricing approach if you like and so that whether you're taking that first or that second approach that informs a, it deeply informs a mindset as to how you then implement that within your asset or with you and or how you implement it within your portfolio if you're taking a portfolio approach yeah yeah definitely excellent points Clive as always so you mentioned the pandemic and I mentioned the pandemic and we can't really have this conversation without talking about the pandemic and you know it really was this you know black swan event and for those of you listening a black swan is kind of like an unexpected event that changes everything so we've had this insane black swan right and you know there hasn't been like global pandemic in what 100 years or something so do we still need to be planning for another black swan in our lifetime or can we check that box and move on? And then the other thing I think is interesting that I learned in my foresight studies is climate change is now a black elephant, which means climate change is the elephant in the room. Everybody knows about it. And by the way, there's also jellyfish and jellyfish are worse than swans. It's <laughs> awesome. Okay, I won't get onto climate change, but in terms of Black swan as it relates to our economy. Uh, firstly, I think it's funny because I was raised, I was born in Perth in Western Australia and there are black swans everywhere. So, <laughs> so they're not a, not a rarity there. <laughs> it, the, the, only, the only thing that I think about, because there's been a lot of talk around black swans and how you prepare, and the only way I can think about this is that whenever we have something like a GFC or the COVID crisis, it, what it does is it, it reminds us as to how vulnerable our organisations are mm-hmm. and and that informs a certain way of planning, a certain way of thinking about the business. And um, we've seen also that there are winners and there are losers through COVID. Some businesses have never done better and they'll continue to do well post-COVID. So it highlights this incredible vulnerability and volatility that sits there. And there are a whole bunch of businesses that, lose sight of that at different times and then they get this enormous shock 
when this occurs. And so when you lose sight of your vulnerability, it leads to arrogance. And that, for example, might lead to arrogance around the way in which you consume real estate. So you sign, I know this isn't in all the markets that you're speaking to, but in Australia, you might have someone that signs a 15-year lease across a huge, huge amount of space in a big building because they know what their needs are in 5, 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Of course they do. Right. Right? <laughs> Until disaster, disaster strikes, and it could be economic disruption within your sector or it could be this macro event like you're referring to. And so to be able to have this kind of posture of caution and confidence, because businesses need to grow, they need to be able to have that fluidity to take on new opportunities and the like. How do you do that? And I don't have a macro answer to that, but I, in terms of my area of specialty, I believe that consuming real estate is something that doesn't have to be as fixed. It doesn't have to be as wooden as it has been in the past. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you can, well, arguably pay a little bit more for a portion of your real estate, arguably a bit more, and to be able to retain that kind of flexibility. So that, for example, if you're going into a new venture, you, you, you know that if things don't go quite the way they you intended, you're able to pull back at a much lower cost base. Than, yeah. um, than, than otherwise. I don't know that I've spoken to that fully, but there, there's some of my, my thoughts around all of that. And so we'll end up, I think, with smarter decision-making coming off the back of COVID, although we're not seeing a lot of smart decision-making yet. I think because people <laughs> are still reeling. But, yeah, recognition of volatility and vulnerability is an important part of a healthy mindset. I totally agree. And and climate change is part of that. Like you can't not see that climate change is happening. So it's interesting. You know, I think one of the reasons we haven't seen a ton of change is because corporations move so slowly, as we all know. And they're so afraid of making the wrong decision around the hybrid work. And a lot of them are making the wrong decision by not making a decision or by surveying their people and then not doing what they're asking for. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a lot of people are really after choice. They want to maybe work a couple of days at home and maybe a couple of days at the office and maybe a couple of days at a third space or a co-working space or whatever works for them. They just want to do what works for them. They don't want to be told anymore where they're going to work. And so I think what that leads to in my mind is there's going to be a huge problem with corporate culture because it's really hard to build culture when people are in disparate locations. And I think that that's an interesting one for co-working because one of the things co-working and flexible workspace has been able to do is build their own culture and then there is that problem of you don't want their culture to be your culture but also I think until you have your act together putting people in a place where there is a culture is actually going to be a game changer and I don't know about you but I am crazy bullish on the future of this market because we've got a lot of people who've been doing this for 10 plus years who know how to do this and culture is a huge thing right so if I take a step back and um, you think about the way in which landlords deliver flexible workspace as opposed to the way you delivered flexible workspace when you had your 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 co-working businesses. Mm-hmm. They're culturally and structurally really not geared up for success in mm-hmm. that because their people, their processes, their legacy, 
constraints really stop them from being dynamic. Mm-hmm. And they might think they're, they're, they're dynamic and they might be more dynamic than their peer, but they're not dynamic businesses. <laughs> they can't make these really fast decisions yeah. on the go. And that's what your success was, Liz. And all of the successful co-working operators, mm-hmm. they have a dynamic person or a dynamic team and their financial backers are willing to recognise that that's part of the game. Mm-hmm. And you twist and turn. It's flexible. It's dynamic. You have to be the brand. You have to be the product. You have to be everything that yeah. that represents. And so most landlords, I think, don't appreciate how important that is and they're not being honest with themselves about either whether what they are or how they need to get to where they need to get to to deliver that. That's on the one side. On the other side is the big occupiers, the big companies, they're not dynamic either. And so they're still having to get their head around what it means to be able to dynamically consume real estate mm-hmm. in order to best meet their productivity gain, um, goals. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so I just want to throw those two points in, but in, in, in a more specific response to your question. Organisations speak very highly of their culture, and I think most of them are kidding themselves. I think most of them don't have very good cultures at all. Yep. And, and they some have incredible leadership, and that through inspiration and through ethical decision-making and it just works its way through an organisation. Right? Mm-hmm. But that's a very top-down approach, and that's, and that's amazing. Most businesses are not like that. And so there are people within a business that are charged with building a culture and they're very defensive about which they've built. But I don't see any businesses that have a really fantastic culture. And yeah. I know that's going to offend a bunch of people, but I don't see that. And, and what we are definitely, this is certainly not my thought at all, but, you know, some smarter people than me are saying that what we're moving is away from an organisation and more to a collection of a whole lot of individual workers Mm-hmm. who are exceptional at what they do. And mm-hmm. there's kind of an individualisation or or a uh, yeah, an individualisation of the workplace. So, Liz, if you and I were to answer the question, what's the work environment that makes us most productive mm-hmm. or makes us mo- most engaged or what's the most efficient place for us to be able to do the work that we do, you and I would come up with very different answers. Mm-hmm. And so if we had a room of people who were answering that question, it would come down to things like, well, what is, the, what is your role? Um, what's your personality? Mm-hmm. What stage of life are you at? Did you get woken up three times through the night because your kid just can't settle? Um, <laughs> right? Uh, what stage of life are you? Do you want to actually just mill with people all the time or you actually just want to get your work done so you can go and be with family or, you know, or whatever or surfing or whatever the case may be. And the workplace is built largely around a singular understanding as to what it needs to be for that singular worker. Yeah, you know, that's so so interesting, Clive. I'm sorry. I just am so excited about this because, you know, I was telling somebody the other day, you know, Elon Musk recently admitted that he's on the spectrum. And I was like, you know, I think the world is designed for whatever the hell normal is, which is kind of boring. And if we designed environments that were more neurodiverse, that really... Mm -hmm excited people and challenged people and invigorated people in a different way. And we were able to make people that are neurodiverse 
be in environments where they felt safe or um, inspired or invigorated. I think a lot more people than we realize are on that spectrum. And, you know, one of the most brilliant minds we have, I mean, he's crazy, but he's also crazy brilliant. Like what if, and like, that's another one of my things is I feel like our design has become so stale and it hasn't had a big leap. I think design is another place, just like real estate was ripe for disruption. I feel like design is ripe for disruption. I don't know what it is. I don't know what the solution is, but I know where I like to work and what my workplace looks like are not the same. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're just saying, so we did have a big design disruption where we had the principles of co-working and service office Mm -hmm. meld. Yeah. And um, so that 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 was that was one. But then we had a whole lot of me too. So people just basically yeah. rolled out that pretty much first iteration of the yeah. molding of those two models. And we, we're still saying, you know, um, next year we'll still see the same iteration of of what we were seeing five years ago. And the finishes might be different, but the fundamental design will be will be the same. And I don't know either, Liz, but I do think that part there are two things so you mentioned Elon Musk someone who just brings a totally different mindset to to a problem probably not that referential right they just know this is my vision and I deliver it and everyone goes the person's crazy the person's crazy that what okay wow the market's really taking to this <laughs> that's what happens and then we start to see something really special so there's slight iteration that occurs but I think we need that new special thing to occur and the second is that pricing has ceilings right and a lot of it is artificial ceilings that put a constraint on how people think about fit out so a good example is the problem we have at the moment is that for example enterprise comes in and they just see a whole lot of boxes and fish bowls. And they say, oh, I don't want to put my people in these boxes and boxes and fishbowls. And then we say, oh, but look at all of this extended amenity that they're able to consume and they're able to move and work in the lounge and work in the cafe and there's little nooks here. And that's good. That's good. But I think that's actually just part. We, we haven't really nailed that. Yeah. Yeah. And the amenity game is something I think is really ratcheting up, you know, because there's so many spaces now that, you know, you've got to figure out what your differentiation is. Like I had a really big, good conversation with Steve King about this. It's like, everybody's got coffee. Everybody's got phone rooms. Everybody's got meeting rooms. Most people have some pretty good design. Like, who are you? What are you offering that's different? So I think brand in the future is going to be super important because you've got to find a way to differentiate yourself. Mm-hmm. And if and and I think there's going to be some really unique amenities. And I hope they're more around neurodiverse design, around wellness, around sensory, around air quality, around, you know, environments that are have more green in them, have more plants in them. So I do think that's going to weigh in in the future. And, you know, we're also seeing, I don't know if you saw Bond Zero in New York. They're one that hit my radar. I kept seeing all these movie stars at Bond Zero. And I'm like, what's Bond Zero? Because I'm like, I know Bond Collective, but what's Bond Zero? And they're actually not um, the same owners or different owners, but both really great. Yeah, yeah, they're not together. But Bond Zero is like... Soho House times 10. 
It's like a really upscale restaurant, really beautiful library, insane amenities, like private dining rooms. You can work out of there too. Like it's a little bit of everything, super high end. All the movie stars are going there, application process, the whole thing. But, you know, we are seeing a lot of these club spaces and very amenity rich spaces. And they're not always as expensive as you would think because they make all their money off F&B. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and some some cultures are more predisposed to clubs than mm. others. In our market, I'm not a big believer in the club model. Mm. Coming here, I think there's a bit of a there's a little bit of attraction, but there's also an aversion to to the elitism that sits around all of that. And oh I yeah, what is like it? You guys have a saying about poppies. Oh, there's a there's a there's a there's a saying called the tall poppy yeah. syndrome. So if, yeah. the, if the poppy comes up above the others, it gets it gets lopped off. But you, you can be a tall poppy. You've just got to have a certain way about you, and then okay. and then you're fine. But that kind of that that kind of that show off kind of elitist approach is not really well that regarded mm. here. And, and there are strengths and weaknesses associated with that mindset. Um, Interesting. A bunch of a bunch of weaknesses, but yeah. So this kind of this glass ceiling that sits there around pricing, you know. So in Sydney, oh, you could never get more than thirteen fifty a desk yeah. per per month. That's crazy. No one would pay for that, but. That, that's set by a couple of things. That's set firstly by the product that's available, right? What if you actually blew the whole product apart and started again? I'm saying, not saying this is easy, but what if you blew it apart and then put the important elements back together to create something new? What would people be willing to pay for that? And I don't know the answer, but I do know that we see from time to time that pricing sits along like this and then all of a sudden someone comes along and has a new way of presenting to the market or a new confidence about themselves and boom, up it goes. And then the rest of the market kind of follows and then that becomes the ceiling. And the reason why I'm focusing on pricing at the moment is because something, the money has to come from somewhere in order to be able to deliver that something special. Well, and, yeah, and that, but I do think actually, and I've I've had a scenario I was playing around with, which was like very, very high-end space because I believe the corporations would pay for it if you could attach it to attention and retraction of employees. If you delivered a space that made them feel special, healthier, better, could achieve more, were around people that they were invigorated by, were in a space that was just phenomenal. I think, I think we could seriously bump that number. But you know, it would cost insane money to build, you know? So there's, yeah, it's interesting, but I think, I think that's going to happen. And this is where we go back to the landlords, because I think most of the co-working operators' access to capital, access to debt is challenging. Very, Um, very. And and they prefer to, for very good reason, prefer to go incremental. So you want to grab 10 million here, 20 million here, rather than 100 million, because you have to give so much away of your base in order to be able to, your equity position, in order to be able to to get that. So, so, and then, so that just goes into growth rather than transformation. Um, And whereas on the other hand, the landlords have access to very cheap capital, but a couple of things occur. Firstly, they tend to not be very innovative, right? And secondly, they spend way too much 
on the same thing. So a, a project I'm involved in in Sydney, uh, Key Quarter Tower, they have 4,300 square metres or times 10 per feet and about um, 900 metres of that or a little over 900 metres of that is allocated to lounge and really high standard meeting rooms. Mm-hmm. And then there's actually, and, and that's available to people within the building Mm. as well as the co-working business that it sits within. Yeah. Right. So there's a there's a real cross-pollination in there. You can justify allocating so much more space to that kind of amenity and high-end meeting rooms, et cetera. And then behind the line, if you like, there's more lounge, there's more cafe, there's more. And so, again, you're just creating through scale and through good thinking a range of places that people can go and do their work. Yeah, and that's what they want. They want that choice. And you can, and so I think landlords can get that economy of scale by delivering um, a shared space, which isn't just for the paying customer of the flexible workspace, if, if you like. So I think that's that's an interesting approach. That really is. That really is. And yeah, you're right. Um, it's very hard to raise money. It's even harder if you're a woman. I mean, that's part of the reason I I left because I was passed by by men and I didn't get the big money to do my dreams. And that's just the way it is. I'm not complaining. That's just a fact. And yeah, we work didn't do us any favors, even though we work with such an extreme example of one ego run riot fueled by billions of dollars from a man from Japan. Like it still has tainted the industry industry a little bit. I think we will quickly get over that. I think the money will flow in because the fact of the matter is like in Austin, Texas, it's November 19th. I was in spaces last week that were completely full. Can't, there's no, there's no more space, but now it's the, well, how do you expand when we don't have enough supplies there aren't enough workers and all of the landlords are putting out their own flexible space. Mm -hmm. So it's really, I think it's going to be super interesting, but I think it's going to be an absolute tidal wave of activity and growth that's coming to this industry like we've never seen before. The pandemic, hard as hell. The other side, get ready. It's coming. And that's what we've been telling people. We've been like, you better start working on your next space. You better start working on your strategy. You better start working on hiring back those people you laid off because you're going to need them back. Yeah. And in the flexible workspace sector itself has, and still is in many ways, very immature. Yeah. Very. Right? yeah. And um, you, you say, for example, uh, access to data around the industry Mm-hmm. Is that, and that's a marker of maturity of an industry. So, what is the pricing? What is occupancy? You know, what is the actual cost per person to be able to do all of those kinds of metrics? You and I might know the answers to those those questions, but they're not readily available out there. Um, it's it's a fairly closed closed shop. On the one hand, it's low barrier to entry, but it's really hard to do well through. It's very hard to scale because of the capital that's required, and so we you. There are just thousands and thousands of co-working operators out there who represent the majority, individual and maybe two or three spaces that represent the majority of the spaces out there. Um, So there are just a couple of of the many indicators that show that we're in an immature, we're still an immature sector. Now, one of the things that's going to change that is when, as we see hoteliers, F&B companies, real estate 
businesses, different types of landlords, retail and commercial, starting to move, increase like real, they have already, but really starting to move into that sector to create that kind of diversity. And, you know, I, I caught myself earlier when I was referring to pricing caps because I was thinking about the, the high-end product, but really the industry needs to be able to respond very effectively to low price points, mid price points, high price points, um, diverse needs within um, customers that at the mid price point, there isn't a single perfect. Mm -mm. There are a bunch of perfects that sit out there for, for someone and we need to have people who are pursuing each of those. And we are so far off that that I fully agree with you, Liz, that from a scale perspective, but also what the product looks like, the next five years is going to be a really fun ride. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would love to end on that note, but I'm not going to because I want to talk about what did I miss? What did I talk about that we should have talked about? You know, I always talk about mental health and I'm always now talking about inclusivity and diversity and sustainability, but I also feel like those are also black elephants in the room. But I said that to somebody else and they said, Liz, don't you dare stop talking about that because it's so important. So I just had to bring that up, but was there anything else that you're like, oh my gosh, we didn't talk about, you know, we talked about brand, we talked about diversity, we talked about design, we talked about real estate, we talked about all those things. Like what what big thing is going to be changing that we didn't talk about? Mm. You mentioned before about raising money, which I'd love to get out in the public domain. And that is the people that are raising money, there are, I guess, there are three categories. People that probably shouldn't succeed because they just don't have the capability to scale. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then there are the honeypots, those people who are, you know, it's like um, Adam at WeWork, he is a honeypot. I've never met him, but clearly, when he knows how to charm people, he knows how to sell an incredible story, which is a gift, which I don't have. <laughs> it's a gift. And so I class those people as honeypots. And no matter what the product is, whether they can actually scale, whether the product's any good, whether there's long-term value is irrelevant. Those people are what they are. Again, I'm not referring to any individuals in terms of the deficiencies there. Um, but then there are people that are just really amazing have a really clear vision for where things are going and how to be able to get there they can scale they've got a great team around them but they're not a honeypot yeah they're not someone who's the sexy thing on the block and you know those are the people that i would just love to see succeed yeah and at the moment with the business industry still being immature it's not really much of an opportunity for them to receive the due recognition um, and for financiers and banks to really identify them through, I guess, third-party endorsement, validation and, um, and get behind them. I'd love to see a lot more of that. There are people out there that do an amazing job that struggle way too hard to get capital. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I think the other thing that we saw in the States that I don't know if you saw it over in Australia is women left in droves. Mm -hmm. um, we lost almost all the women run brands, um, either by choice or because they had to. Um, I'm one of the only ones that was able to sell. sell. Um, and there's a huge empty hole of women co-working scaling. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it just... It baffles me. I, I don't, 
my 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 worldview is that I would like to see not so much women only co-working because I don't really see how that works unless you've got a whole lot of you know solopreneurs or gig workers or like because as soon as you start employing people, what does that really mean for the space? Um, although there is a place for that. But when but women um, as as leaders, be it on you know exec team or the um, or the pioneers driving this, and I but I don't really have a lot to say for it because I personally don't. Uh, uh, I, I guess I don't have a, a, a gender bias one way or another. But clearly, there's a strong gender bias out there that I just don't understand. Well, and I think and, it's- and really, it comes down to I think we just need some people to. Um, through sheer tenacity and luck and skill to kick the goals where people start to be identified as, oh, I missed out on that opportunity. I need to keep my eyes open. But I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's perplexing to me. Yeah, it's definitely perplexing to me as well. But I think a lot of it does have to do with, I think in the, the US, it's like women get 2% of the money. And I think part of that, I was actually listening to a podcast recently and it said that like men view business as a team sport and women do it alone. They go out alone and try to do it and men do it with their friends and their colleagues and they're on e- they play golf together and they get on each other's boards and they invest in each other. And women don't do that. And so I think we need, there's some things we can learn and some things we can take forward, but you know, that's interesting. Like maybe, maybe one of the things Juicy needs to do down the road is try to try to help solve that one, right? Is there a way for us to raise a fund? Is there is a way for us to um, provide more information that will help people raise money? Because I do think that that is a, a problem that we have in our industry. And so I think that's super interesting, but just like you totally, it's just going to be as, you know, 2022 is going to be the roaring 2022s and we're already seeing it. Can't wait for you to see it in Australia. I know you guys have had some rough, long lockdowns, but more power to you. I think you probably saved a lot of lives. And so that's what's really important. And we can't wait to get back over to Australia and see you guys face-to-face and give you a big, juicy hug. Thank you, Liz. And shout-out to you that even though the challenge that you referred to around trying to get funding and needing to sell your business or choosing, I don't know if it's need or choosing to sell your business, the industry actually needs you to be putting your time into supporting the industry globally Mm-hmm. rather than putting time into building an individual business. And I'm thinking, I know, I'm not talking about what's best for you here, mm-hmm. but the voice that you bring the industry and the time now that you have to be able to support it through through uh, Liz, through Juicy, you know, because they're two separate voices, is just is really valuable. Oh. Um, so thank you. Thank you for what you bring. Well, thank you. It was actually a conscious decision. I looked around at that time, there were 70 co-working spaces in Austin and there were uh, three co-working conferences in the world. And I was like, hmm, where should I spend my time and energy? So I sold the co-working business to go focus on the conference and the community business because I felt like it had greater long-term potential. And I still believe that. Yeah, me too. Awesome. 
Thanks, Liz. Thanks for your time, Clive. I'm so excited to get to talk to you about this. And you guys stay tuned. There's more to come. Thank you for listening to this episode of Workplace Trends with Liz Elam. I'm Liz Elam, your host. You can learn more about all things Juicy has to offer at Juicy.co, which is G-C-U-C dot C-O. Don't forget to like this podcast and subscribe to the Juicy podcast. Stay tuned. We have more episodes on the way. Ciao.